Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. This is season three. I am your host, Marcus Da Silva, and I am pleased to be joined once again by one of my professors, Dr. Vicki Thanapal. It's nice seeing you, Vicki. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a hot one in, in the UK today, so we're, we're appropriate. Hot. <laughs> yeah. At some point, I will have to take a break and uh, top myself up with water, but yeah. Yep, gotta stay, gotta stay fueled. Yeah. So today, uh, so we had you on the second season, and in that episode, we talked mostly, uh, pretty entirely on on different family law issues. Mm-hmm. And the other course, uh, well, you teach a few courses, but the the other course that is related to family law is also child law. And I really enjoyed child law uh, when I took the course. It's a Family law and child law are interesting because you you go into a class like that with quite a number of preconceived notions about the topics, whether it's from media or from just your daily interactions with people. You kind of form these ideas uh, and then you you go in and you learn about the law and, and the policy and, and it really changes your perspective or, or in some cases reaffirms it. But either way, it's it's a relatively enlightening experience. <laughs> Um, which is always great. So you, you get to have that. And so today uh, we're going to go into child law topics uh, and we'll kind of stick with that and, and go through all that. So, sure. <laughs> so yeah. I think, uh, so what we'll start with uh, briefly, kind of we'll go a bit off topic and then we'll, we'll kind of tie it in throughout. Uh, but one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about in the first episode and we never got around to it is your upbringing uh, just because I, I always found it to be quite it was quite interesting I know you talked about it in lectures and whatnot a bit so I think to to start off today's podcast it'd be great just to talk about a little bit where you grew up and and your experiences from you know, childhood through through teen through teenage years okay um, so my background well um, I grew up in Singapore. I'm Singaporean, um, so that's my nationality. Um, so I was born in Singapore. Um, I'm pr- fairly typical Singaporean childhood um, of, of that time, which was in the 80s. Um, went to school, so I went to an all-girls school. Um, it, was a, it was a Catholic school, actually, convent school. Um, so I did that for up to sort of secondary education and, and then you know went to sort of like pre-university college. And then after that, I did my undergraduate and you know postgraduate, and finally found found myself at some point um, doing my PhD in in England. Um, so childhood wise, yeah, wasn't really like I said, it was fairly typical Singaporean childhood. Um, how does that differ from? <laughs> uh, well, Singapore is a small island, I guess you know, so things were a lot. A lot closer, I, I, I guess, than than growing up like somewhere in like the states or or or, or England, um, in the sense that nothing is more than an hour away, so it's it was really easy for you to see like your grandparents, um, you know, extended family, which which, if you're living somewhere else, it could involve a flight. Like, in, in America, you know, if if you live from one state to another, if you wanted to visit, it, it's a big thing. You know, you just do it at Thanksgiving, involves a flight or something. Um, here in England, I mean, if, if you've got parents who live 
you know, up north and, and you're living down in London, then it's, it's an entire weekend trip, you know. So for us, being on a tiny island, um, in that sense, it was easy. You know, things were accessible. Um, so you grew up sort of close to your family because you, you could just drop by in the night or something like that. Um, Singapore is also, I'm not, I'm not sure if you've been, um, but it's also a very sort of multicultural and very cosmopolitan city. It's, it's a country and a city, so tiny, so it's just one. Um, now, you know, much more cosmopolitan than it was in the 80s, but even by 80s standards, it was quite, you know, we had like massive shopping malls, um, cinemas and, and stuff like that. So comparing it, let's say, to, to like a kid growing up here who is maybe growing up out of London in one of like the smaller towns or the villages, um, I would say we were quite privileged because we weren't so isolated. You didn't have to wait around for parents to give you a ride if you wanted to like go to the movies or something. Um, you could just hop on a bus, you know, and it's very safe. Um, you just take a cab, you know, it doesn't cost a bomb. Whereas here, again, if you're outside of the big cities, going on public transport, like you'd have to wait for a long time. Um, could be really expensive if it involves trains. Um, so it, it was quite strange because growing up, like you kind of had this idea of um, kids growing up in the West, like they had a lot more opportunities, but that was because of the media. Like when you watched um, TV or movies, it focuses on kids growing up in like, LA or New York, which are big cities. And so you think, oh, wow, you know, they have all that. But when, when you come, you know, when you travel and you learn more and you realize that's not the case, um, you know, there's, between LA and New York, there's, there's a lot of space and there are kids growing up in like, you know, small towns where nothing happens and they'd love to be in a city. Um, and then you think, oh, I'm quite lucky because, you know, we had all that at our doorstep and it was accessible. It was affordable for us to sort of just hop on a bus, hang out in a mall or something. It didn't involve having to wait until you were 16 and got your driver's license. Um, so that, so yeah, so that, that was one good thing. Um, Education-wise, um, strict, I guess. Um, Singapore, well, I suppose Asian culture um, places a lot of value on education. I think at some point, maybe unhealthy amount of value. Um, so there's pros and cons, of course. I think it's really good to, you know, to push your kids educationally. Um, but in Singapore, some, some parts of Asia is not just Singapore, you know, some parts of Asia um, sort of take it that step too far. And I think, you know, you have this stereotype of like a tiger mom or, or something like that. Um, and, and that is true. There are some parents who are like that. You know, it's not, it's when that book came out in, in, in sort of the Western world in America, everyone was, oh my God, that has to be a carry catcher that, you know, that has to be entertainment value, she has exaggerated some of it. No, absolutely not. I can tell you it's not exaggerated. There are some parents, I've had experience with parents who are like that. My parents were not, you know, um, as bad as that, but they still pushed, you know, educationally. Um, but yes, it can go to some extremes in, in Singapore, um, the kind of pressure. Uh, it's worse today, I think. It's, it's much worse today. Um, if I compare it, back to how in the 80s and 90s when I was in school um, and how it is today, I would say I got off really easy then. Like the kids back home today, like 
the the pressure that they are under is like a real hot house environment. Um, and it's it's not just from the parents, it's also from the schools, from the society. Um, and I feel sorry for them actually. Yeah, well, I ask that is just to talk about your how you grew up is just because when it comes to, well, really any topic, but especially when it comes to family law and child law and and in tutorials when you're mixing with different people, different backgrounds, um, it's just always interesting for me to to hear the the Eastern philosophy versus the Western philosophy because you know for me. Mm -hmm about as Western as it gets. I mean, literally a West Coast kid. Um, but, you know, growing up through, you know, Canada and, you know, that that whole system and those ideas, um, you, you have just a different mentality when it comes to certain issues, I think, or you're predisposed to certain issues in a particular way. And so it's, it's always interesting how those play out when it comes to, you know, looking at different legal issues and whatnot. Yeah, as, as with anything in life, Obviously, you know, a balance is ideal. You know, you, you don't want to have too laissez-faire attitude towards your kid's education. Um, and you don't push them to realize their potential because then they don't realize their potential and, you, you know, they don't end up doing stuff the best that they can be and it could impact their choices later on in life. So you don't want that either, you know, and it's, it's but to go completely the other way and to push a child to breaking point, right? Um, where they feel like if they can't achieve what you demand of them, that they're worthless, that they're never never going to be able to survive in society and um, that if they don't get a certain job, then what they do is of no value. Um, I think that's really unhealthy. And there has to be a middle ground between these two sort of paths. There has to be a middle ground, but it just seems really hard to find, I think. Um, the, the other thing, I guess, as well in somewhere like Singapore is we, we don't really have like a safety net, like a state safety net. And to a certain extent, you know, um, just talking about England or the UK, if, you know, you don't do as well as you should, um, there is to a certain extent a state safety net um, Albeit much reduced these days, you know, um, it's really hard to get kind of welfare help, but it's there, you know, um, we, we don't have that in Singapore. So again, this is, you can see where the parents are coming from, because there is this constant worry that if I don't push my kids and, you know, they don't do well, no one's going to help them, you know, they're just going to struggle and, and no one's going to help them and, of course, no one wants to see your, your children having a hard life. So you do it with a good intention that you're, you're pushing your children because that's the way to show you care that you know, you're getting the best for them. Um, but yeah, but it, it comes out wrong. And then if you damage your children mentally or if they feel great, you know, I've achieved all of this, I've done really well, but at what price? Because I never had a childhood. You know, I, I never got to experience life the way it should be. Um, or some people spend so much time, you know, just sort of studying, no social skills, you know, no, no sort of street smarts, no common sense, don't know how to navigate the world, really sheltered. And I think that's not healthy as well, right? Um, so like, yeah, that, you know, between the two, 
there has to be a middle ground. And I think everyone, if you have kids, everyone's searching for that middle ground, um, probably hard to find. <laughs> yeah, and at the end of the day, everybody's just trying to, everybody just wants their kid to be successful. You know, they just, it's just different theories on how to get there, right? I mean, we all want everybody to do well. You, you want your kids to do well at the end of the day, but yeah, it's always interesting yeah. how that dynamic plays out. Yeah, so with that, I mean, let, let's let's get into it a little bit. So before going into greater detail, uh, just tell us, give us a rough overview of what are some topics that would arise in child law? Okay, well, child law actually is, I mean, it's an artificial uh, label that we have put it at, sorry, you know, we call it family law and that's one module and child law, that's another module. Um, that's simply organizational sort of convenience um, to give the students more choice in terms of taking their modules, right? So doing one doesn't necessarily lead to the other or you could, you know, choose one. And um, But it, it comes under the broad umbrella of family law, actually. I mean, you know, there's no like child law textbook. It's, it's a family law textbook and it covers everything from how you enter into a marriage and a civil partnership, how you exit out of one, how you divide your assets after you exit out of one, and then and then the kids, you know, if there are kids in a relationship, then and there are disputes over the kids, the children, how how does the law deal with those disputes? Um, what if the child has certain views about how their life should be? You know, can they have legal sort of recourse to make decisions with their own life? So it just comes under the whole broad umbrella of, of family, of family interactions. And of course, a child is part of a family. So the idea that there is a special, um, you know, module child law, it's, it's, it's artificial. It just comes under this broad family law umbrella. Um, so in child law, we look at basically the child in their, in their, in their position within, within the family. So things like, well, if there's a child, there, there has to be parents, you know, the child has to spring from somewhere. So I think that's the first stage we talk about identifying um, who are the parents to the child. So you relate the child to the parents. Um, who, at what point, you know, do you qualify to label yourself a parent of a child? Because the word parent could be used colloquially. And then there's, of course, the word parent in the eyes of the law, the legal parent. Um, and, and, and if you're recognized as a legal parent, you know, what rights or responsibilities, legal rights and responsibilities would spring from that? Um, and how are those rights and responsibilities governed by the law? Um, if somebody is not a parent, you know, can they act legally with regards to a child? Do they have any sort of rights to say, hey, can I have contact? Can, can I visit? You know, um, stuff like that, right? So, so we start off with parentage, you know, parenthood. Um, for the parents of the child, we we look at um, parental responsibility, which is a is which is a legal term, right? Um, we look at um, then we look at disputes over that disputes over you know. Um, so you've got let's say your typical scenario: you've got two parents, mom and dad, um, and both of them have parental responsibility, and then they disagree on how to exercise that parental responsibility um, and, and you know mediation doesn't help so then the problem goes to court um, how does the law resolve that um, things like 
disputes, once the relationship breaks down, I think that probably fills up the bulk of like 80% of, you know, fam or child law cases, if you call it, um, just really disputes, like sorting out your life with the child after the relationship breaks down. Um, what they call, you know, the term that they use, uh, custody, we don't use that term here anymore. We, uh, and there's, there's a reason why we don't use the word custody, but I always use that in the initial stages when I'm teaching because that's the word everyone recognizes, even though legally we don't use that term. Um, we talk about things like um, contact, you know, having contact or North America, they call it visitation sometimes. I don't know, some people use the term visitation. Um, we look at things like, you know, religious disputes, right? Like, and, and that's becoming more and more popular these days as the world sort of becomes smaller, you know, you get mixed marriages um, and mixed marriages are great. You know, I'm the product of one as well. But the problem with mixed marriages is when in the beginning, things are rosy and, you know, everyone's Romeo and Juliet will overcome all odds and stuff like that. And when a relationship breaks down then, and then you realize each of you have very different religious or cultural values, which you now want to, you know, impart to your kid and your, the other person doesn't agree and that's where the conflict arises. And, you know, it's always good to talk about the religious practices, I think, um, you know, before you, you enter into a serious relationship and have children because people, religion is one of the things that is very polarizing and sometimes, you know, you don't realize like which bits of a particular religion your partner may, may be really invested in until it happens. And then you go, why are you doing that? You know, and then you just realize, hey, but, but you've never been religious before. And they say, well, no, I'm not really religious, but this particular ritual or, or this particular, you know, means a lot to me, my identity, and I want it done. And and you go, well, I don't. <laughs> so, so that's, again, another very, um, for a period of time, we had disputes over vaccinations. That kind of died down for a while. And I expect we're going to see sort of an influx of such disputes once like the COVID vaccine for kids become more popular. And we're going to have like one parent who says, no, I want, I want the child to take it. And another parent who might be tin for a hat. I don't want my child being tracked by Bill Gates or something. Um, so, so yeah. So those are some of the more pop popular kind of disputes. And then um, uh, the surrogacy, of course, you know, um, very interesting. Um, so as, as assisted reproduction, I think in general, right? Um, and then of course you have the child protection. Uh, child protection always very controversial um, because well, I suppose nobody wants the state coming in and saying, hey, you're a bad parent and we need to make sure you do this and that, or, hey, you're such a bad parent that we are taking your children away from you. Um, yeah, that's that's terrible. And, and of course, you know, it brings back a lot of um, very bad memories. I think historically we have seen children like taken away by either like state institutions, religious institutions, um, very scandalous things that are just sort of being uncovered now. And those children didn't necessarily have a better life, sometimes worse. 
um, and and there's a racial aspect to this as well. Of course, um, if you look at like like the you know the First Nations people, um, Native Americans, or the Aborigines in Australia, um, you know, from the slavery plantations and 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 stuff like that. Um, so this masculine idea of children being sort of removed from their parents for their own good does have quite you know unpleasant connotations. Um, but then you also see these headline news cases of like children found in horrific debt, probably in horrific circumstances. And then there's always the question, oh, wh why didn't the police do something? Why didn't social services do something? Um, so as with everything, where, where does the balance lie, right? Um, and, then, and then there's adoption, again, quite tied in as well with a child protection. Um, the idea, of course, is that if, if a parent is not suitable or unable to take care of the child, then the state assumes that care, but it's not good. Um, I think there's clear research that shows that, you know, growing up in institutional state care is not good for children. So the best is to get that child placed in a permanent sort of family situation. Best way to do that is through either stable foster care or, um, or, or adoption. And, and that has its own challenges as well. I think the demographics, uh, the social, um, social sort of background, the social structures, you know, underlying adoption has changed a lot in, in recent years as well. Um, so again, we have had to look at adoption very differently. The law has had the law and policy on adoption has, has had to um, change to adapt to that. So broadly, yeah, these are the things that we cover in our module of um, child law. In private discussions that I have, kind of about the podcast and and everything else, it, it's funny when when people kind of make comments like, "Oh, like why why did you have this guest on?" or or why would you talk about that? Or, you know, everybody's got an opinion on something, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, kind of the thing that I say is that with, with any of these podcasts, uh, I'm not trying to provide the answers, but at the very least, get people thinking and questioning mm -hmm. before they get into, because, I mean, if you, if you get, not even married, if you, if you have a, if you're in a civil partnership, or if you do get married, and then you end up having kids, you know, these are these are discussions and these are questions that people should be asking themselves before they get into a relationship. And then certainly when they're in it, you know, it's critical that you discuss these things with your partner, whoever they may be, because, yeah, you know, you don't want things to go. Things can go south very quickly, <laughs> very quickly. And especially if it's within the environment of a relationship breakdown, because <clears throat> There's, there's all that emotions there, you know, the relationship breaks down for a reason. And I know there can be amicable sort of mutual breakdown where, where both parties are mature and cooperative. I would say from experience, that is the, those are in the minority. Mm -hmm. The majority mm -hmm. of relationship breaks, breakdowns, you know, come with a lot of baggage. They come with, you know, anger, um, just, just from the relationship. And then it carries on to, we, we're all human, you know, it's very difficult to say, right, I'm so angry at this person because they've been a bad partner, they've been abusive, they've cheated, whatever. But when it comes to discussions of the children, I am able to compartmentalize myself 
you know, and deal with it as a neutral, mature adult that we, with no, you know, our emotions and discuss what's best for the child, you know, on a pro and cons. No, you're not. You, you, you can't. You're a human being. You're definitely, well, if you can, I take my hat off to you. You're a better person than me. Um, you are going to be colored by, by, by the fact that, you know, you already have some kind of anger or disappointment with this person. You don't trust their judgment because they have behaved badly in your eyes. So yeah, whatever, you know, point of view they have, you're, you're going to be like, no, you know, it's, yeah. Um, and of course, some people are not above um, using the child to strike back at the other person in the course of relationship breakdown. So sometimes when you look at, let's say a dispute over religion, for example, or a, the religious upbringing of a child, you, you have to ask yourself, is, is this really a conflict about religion? Or is one person trying to use this as a way to control the other, you know, try to insert themselves into the other person's life, um, try to say, hey, if I take you back to court, you have to deal with me in some way, right? You, I'm here, you know, and that's a very common tactic for abusers to use, right? Um, they use the legal system because some attention, even if it's negative attention, is still a form of control that you are inserting yourself into the other party's life. Um, so, yeah, so we have to see, you know, what this root of the problem is, you know, a religious issue could, or, or an issue about dispute over schooling, for example, going to, to school, a particular type of schooling. Um, is it really a dispute over that? Or is it, you know, some other some other kind of, you know, emotional issue and sort of, okay, this is the hill I'm going to die on. This is my last stand because I'm not going to allow you to treat me that way or how dare you think you can treat me that way or whatever. One of the things really interesting was the children's or a child's right to know their parentage. And, and how the law has treated that and how that's changed over the years. So could you talk about that in a bit more detail? Okay. So that concept that a child has the right to know their parentage um, has, I think since the early 2000s, has gained, um, has gained a lot of traction. It has, been, um, it has been enshrined in legislation, but it's not an absolute right. In the set, and it can never be an absolute right, you know. Um, it, it has been enshrined in legislation, for example, in adoption legislation. So we had the Adoption Act, and Adoption and Children Act, two thousand and two, which establishes um, an adoption register. So now, you know, since two thousand and two, adoption records are kept. These records sent in a central record system. Uh, children who are adopted, when they reach the age of 18, they have the right to access these records. Um, adoptive parents um, are allowed to put themselves on a register, um, which, you know, children, once they turn 18, they can access the records. They can then contact um, their birth parents if the, if, if the birth parent has put themselves on the register. Um, so that's entirely voluntary. So all, that is an example of the law putting into practice this concept of the child's right to know the parent. 
Um, we've, we've done that in also the HFEA 2008, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act, where um, genetic donors of genetic materials, such as sperm donors, egg donors, um, have to consent to their details being held on record. And when the child, you know, the product of their genetic material, once they turn 18, um, the child can then access these records. Um, so, so that's one example, right? Um, and that comes, I think, comes off the back of research and I think just better education about um, human beings and identity and biological identity. I think at one point, um, a lot of us, and I, some still do at this point, feel that um, say if you have adopted a child, and especially if you have adopted a child at a very young age, you know, like newborn or if they're an infant, then they say they they have this belief that you know it's it's better for the child to just sort of transplant into the family, clean slate, right? The child doesn't know any better. Why confuse them? Why tell them? Right? Why why disrupt their childhood by giving them these questions over their head growing up? So back then I think you could still do it, you know, um you could move to a new town, you know, no one's gonna know, no one's gonna question. Um, but these days Adoption's a bit more difficult. You very seldom get newborns. Um, generally, you have an older child. Um, so those children already have some sense of their identity and, and they know that you know, you're not their biological parent. They, they question. Um, so, and if, if they never know who their biological parents are, you know, then there's a question mark over their identity. And research has shown that such children do struggle in adulthood. That problem, I think, is compounded even more if you look at things like interracial adoption, because right from the start, there are visual cues where the child would know. Um, so the research shows that it, it does trouble, you know, children who are born from um, assisted reproduction, if they somehow get to know that, you know, they're, they're, it was somebody else's sperm or someone else's egg that, that created them, there's the identity issue. They're, they're curious. It's human curiosity. And if that curiosity isn't satisfied, um, then, you know, they do struggle with identity, right? I think it was a very interesting research. Um, it was a small-scale research, to be fair. I think it was about, like, 200 uh, children. They were Hong Kong children uh, who were adopted by British uh, parents um, from a very young age. And they, they were tracked and, and they were interviewed um, when they were, you know, in their adulthood, when they were middle age. And out of these 200 children, I think all of them went on to um, achieve, you know, great things, like things what we would consider to be successful these days, right? They were successful people, you know, good education, professional jobs. They had their own families. They were doing well. Um, but almost every single one of them, even though they said that they felt loved by their adoptive parents, they, they were, you, you know, they were given opportunities that they probably wouldn't have, you know, in Hong Kong as they were orphans at that time. Um, they realized all of that. They realized all of that. But invariably, you know, practically every single one of them said that they struggled and they still do struggle with issues of identity. And because of the adoption system at that time and the records, you know, kept in Hong Kong and there's, there's probably no chance that they, they would ever find um, or track down their parents. Um, and, and this is something that they struggle with.
right? So, and that's a very small scale study, but there are other larger scale studies, um, not just, you know, in, in the UK, but adoption across the world that, that reflect that. Um, so yeah, the child's right to know their parents, I think comes from there. And we see that in adoption legislation in assisted reproduction. But as I said, it's not an absolute right because it's, it's, it's impossible to be an absolute right for everyone. There are children, and this is terrible to say this, there are children right now who um, are in families with parents who, who they think they are, that they are parents, um, especially fathers, you know, growing up with men who they think they are the, that man is their father, and he isn't. And unless a dispute arises where this question is then put to the test and a DNA test is ordered, and if that situation never comes about, this child is never going to know his parentage. Okay, so unless, you know, either the child or the man has questions, does it, you know, it goes to court or... He, some men have done this, they've secretly swapped their child and done a DNA test because they've had suspicion um, or like a medical emergency. And then, you know, they test the parents to see whether you could be a suitable donor. And that's when, you know, ache all over everyone's faces. Um, but barring anything like that happening, I am quite sure there are, you know, there are a lot, there are a number of um, families where children grow up into their adulthood into quite middle or old age with a parent, most likely the father, who they think is their father, who, who he isn't. Um, and there's no law that can, you know, give these children the right, because how are you going to do it? Short of DNA testing every single child that's born, you know, and, and we can't do that. I mean, there's so many ethical implications with that. I can't even go through them. So this right, yeah, we can do it for things that are obvious, like children who are adopted, you know, um, sort of sperm donation and stuff like that, because these are the things that are controllable, right? It happens within a confined environment and you can control it, you can have registers. Um, but how are you gonna do that for every single child that is born, you know, or has uh, came about in their family, for lack of a better word, organically? In a whatever lecture, because this is one of the first few topics that we cover in the module, and I remember in, in the lecture, I, I specifically on this uh, issue, I remember turning to one of my friends and going like, oh, I guess we just arrived to the Jerry Springer show. Yes. And, and it's, and tell me the figure, but I remember, my memory is telling me it's something like 30%? S something like 25 to me, it seems terribly high. Um, I've not actually gone in depth into this research, so I cannot say whether um, it's a sound piece of research. You have to look at their methodology, the sample size that they've tested. But from memory, the piece of research that has been trotted out most often in like articles or you know about like sort of documentaries, you know, um, is the one in like is the twenty five percent. To me, that seems terribly high. Well, and, and in you know, actual terms, that means that one in four kids yes. believes their father, who, oh. who they've grown up to, oh, that's dad, and is biologically yeah. not your father. 
Yeah, or vice versa, you know, a man, like one out of every four children born, there's, there's a man thinking that's his kid when it isn't. Um, so yeah, it works both ways. Like I said, I mean, I, I can't speak for how true this research, and actually that now puts an idea in my head, maybe I'm going to look into this and see if it's just one piece of study that everyone's been trotting out because the figure is sensational, or are there a number of reliable studies that give us sort of this roundabout figure? Um, but yeah, when, when I saw the 25, um, so I've been quoting this figure without actually looking at its validity. Um, <laughs> that's the figure popularly used. And to me, it seems really high. It's frightening. Mm -hmm. Makes you question everything. And, and, and that's the thing. That, that's why I made that comment earlier, because it's like, that's probably something that most people outside of a law class have probably never really heard, or they've heard it on you know, the Jerry Springer show, or I guess Jeremy oh, Kyle. Yeah, Maury, I prefer, yeah, I prefer Maury. Um, Maury has built an entire career out of this. But, <laughs> but again, you know, the type of people that go on Jerry Springer or Maury is a very self-selecting audience. Very true. And, yeah, and at the risk of sounding horribly, horribly snobbish and classes, Again, you know, from, from the characters that go on these shows, you can see that they sort of make the kind of lifestyle choices that make this sort of situation likely to happen, right? Um, so, you know, probably in that kind of demographic, it might be one in 50%, I don't know. And then when you take the figures against the whole population, it works out to one in 25. So it might be sort of more prevalent in certain areas among certain cultures, among certain like income groups or, or lifestyle groups, for example, um, as opposed to others. But yeah, you know, one in, one in 25%, it's, it's really scary. And, and like anything, like socioeconomic status has a big role in, in or, or is particularly prevalent in certain issues. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of where you'll, you'll see issues of, of that nature but you know it, it happens I mean that's one of those things but and I remember a case I'm trying to remember well it wasn't maybe necessarily a specific case but a, a group of cases when it comes to actually this might have even been in the domestic violence module but for uh, parents uh, upon the the dissolution of the, of the relationship um, disputing dispute like a father who then thinks oh you know for a we'll use custody right for, for the custody mm -hmm. order and then all of a sudden it turns out oh that's biologically not my child how would yeah. that factor into the courts determining orders of that kind um well if he's not the biological father you know um but he has a relationship with the child. So for example, if his name is on the birth certificate, then he is the legal father. Um, so even if it turns out that, you know, he's not the biological father, in the eyes of the law, he is still recognized as the father because his name is on the birth certificate. Um, and as such, he can still apply for, uh, with well, not custody, but residence of the child. Um, and if he doesn't get residence, you know, he could still have contact with the child if he wants, you know, um, the very sad thing is that sometimes you see in such a situation when, when the man realizes, you know, he, he then just doesn't want anything to do with the child, even though up until then, you know, they've had a perfectly great relationship 
And again, this is emotions taking over. It's not the best way to act. Um, but sometimes it does happen. And that's very unfortunate. It's a child that pays the price. Because um, they don't understand why they've suddenly been rejected by this person that you know they've always had a relationship with. Um, so it takes, as a, again, maturity, you know, being a strong person. But some people can and some people can't. And you know, it's not up to tell someone how to handle their trauma. It's, it's, it's a huge shock you know, to, to suddenly find out. Um, but yes, you know, if, if they're not his children, but he's on the birth certificate, so there's options there. Um, you, you also have situations where like relationships with stepfathers. So these are people who know that this child is not theirs, but they have taken on, you know, sort of a paternal role as a stepfather. And then when the relationship breaks down, they wish to continue that role. Um, the law has options for that as well. So if you are a stepfather, you have the opportunity to apply or a stepmother, you know, you have the opportunity to apply for parental responsibility with regards to that child. And with parental responsibility, that opens up the doors to then applying for other types of orders, such as having the child live with you or having contact with the child as well. Mm -hmm. So it starts off from there. So even if, you know, you don't have any genetic relationship with the child, you know the child's not yours, but you have taken on some kind of parental capacity, the law has avenues for you to, to then seek recourse to either, you know, confirm, solidify, or continue that relationship with the child, or even to be involved in some aspect of decision-making with, with the child. Right, and, and so when it comes to matters of uh, the, the biological element in regards to the father, it, it seems to be that the, the courts will also acknowledge like, yes, bi biological factors are important, but they also will recognize that social parental role that a father, mother, stepfather, stepmother, whoever, other people as well, if they assume that role and how the courts will interpret that. And so before moving on into uh, surrogacy, and, and this will kind of lend itself into that, mm -hmm. um, you spoke with how fathers are treated by the courts in that biological component. Yeah. Um, but how, how does that play in with mothers? Okay, there's a slight slight difference. Um, so there's this question of who do we consider a parent? So what what um, criteria you know do you use to determine who is a parent? And um, there, there are different criteria. So one is of course the genetic criteria. So who contributes the two elements that are necessary to create a child, which is the sperm and the egg? Um, and then of course, um, you have the, you know, sort of social, right? So some people say, well, it's not about, you know, anyone, as long as you have the correct equipment and it's working, you know, it, any two people can go and create a child. But at the end of the day, you know, it's whoever raises the child to become a productive, a, a viable, you know, human being um, puts in the hard work, so to speak, right? And that's, that's difficult. That's not something you know, everyone can do. So that should be the real mark of parenthood. It's the blood, sweat, and tears that come from you know, bringing up this child. Um, and very often, it's, it's the same people. You, know, you created the child, whatever, for better or for worse, you put in the blood, sweat, and tears. And, and, um, but we can only use one of these criteria to determine who the parents, parents are. So it really boils down to now, of course, everyone could have different um, opinions about which should be the 
defining criteria of how we identify a parent. The law is not quite clear on this, okay? Um, for mothers, but for, I'm talking about English law anyway. Um, for mothers, right, the mother is determined as the person who has carried the child. So for the nine months, right? It's, it's demonstrated by fact, okay, by physical fact, right? Whoever this, well, if you're a woman and you have carried a child in your womb for nine months and you've delivered the child either naturally or by C-section, you are at that moment of birth when that child comes out and takes its first breath, in the eyes of the law, you are the child's mother. Now, because of the technology that we have today, that woman who is carrying that child may genetically have no relationship with the child because it could be someone else's egg that has you know, fused with you know, sperm that has created the embryo. It's just her body, her womb that is carrying the child. But if you do a DNA test, she has no DNA relation with this child because it was not her genetic material. Um, despite that, the, the fact that she has carried the child, the law recognizes her as the mother. Now, if you ask a person, you know, sort of people on the street, you could get very mixed uh, response for this, right? So someone might say, well, but how can she be a mother when genetically she hasn't, you know, um, doesn't have anything to do with the child? Um, so they, they can't wrap their head around that, right? Um, and some might say, well, e even if she delivers the child, you know, if she's not the one who's bringing it up, you know, how can she be? So you could get very uh, diverse views about this. But in English law, that's how the mother is determined. So it's not actually about motherhood here. It's not actually about the genetic material, so the contribution of the egg, nor is it about bringing up the child, right? It's about giving, it's about birth. It's about pregnancy and birth. Now, of course, at once, you know, the child is born, she can then, of course, get rid of her motherhood status, having the child adopted, for one. In a surrogacy agreement, you know, she could consent to a parental order, and that terminates her legal status as a mother. Um, so that's fine. But at that moment at birth, right, the eyes of the law recognizes her as the mother. Father, on the other hand, there are many different elements, you know, depending on the situation of how you came about your fatherhood, your status is determined. So if it is, um, if you're a married man, right, and your wife gives birth, the law immediately recognizes you legally as the father of that child, even if biologically it wasn't your child. So that's one way of determining fatherhood is by looking at marital status of the man. So a married man is legally automatically the legal father of any children his wife delivers. Um, and, the, and the law will recognize that until there's a dispute. And if that dispute is then clarified by DNA test, then the law will say, okay, you're not. And another man, you know, recognize. If the man is not married, then there are different ways that he could be legally recognized as the father. Uh, one is by registering on a birth certificate. And so if he registers on the birth certificate, the law says, okay, you have accepted paternity and the woman has allowed you, you know, she has consented to you accepting paternity. We will now recognize you as the father. Uh, of course, then later on a dispute happens, 
and it turns out he isn't, then of course, then his name is removed off the birth certificate and it's amended, et cetera. Then you have um, assisted reproduction. And then here is where it gets even more complicated because you have assisted reproduction that is done under uh, HFEA, licensed clinic. And you have these days quite popular, you know, DIY assisted reproduction. So if it's DIY assisted reproduction and we are looking at things like, um, you know, people going on the dark net and just sort of getting into informal so co-parenting agreements with other people. Now that kind of thing is determined by, again, you know, natural conception, right? If, if you say you are and you register, no, that's fine. Um, but if it's under a HF, HFEA licensed clinic, then um, it depends on, on, on the statute. So again, it goes back to marital status. So if a man is married and his wife has received treatment in a HFEA licensed clinic, that man will be assumed to be the father of the child unless he did not consent to the treatment. So then, you know, consent becomes an issue. If he did consent to the treatment, then it doesn't matter whether donor sperm or whatever was used. The fact that his wife received such treatment and he was married to her, he would be considered legally to be the father. If it's an unmarried couple who received treatment at a HFEA licensed clinic, then the unmarried man could be recognized as the father if certain conditions are satisfied. And the law sets out, um, the statute sets out what those conditions are. So it's, it's to do with consent, you know, making sure that the consent hasn't been withdrawn, that the woman, uh, who has the mother who has given birth to the child, that she consents, um, you know. So the thing about HFEA licensed clinics is they have to make sure these conditions are satisfied. So record keeping and paperwork so that once the child is born, the people who are supposed to be recognized or who want to be recognized as the child's father, parents, um, is able to show that, look, you know, we have ticked all these boxes, we have had all these consents, they're on paper, we have satisfied the requirements. So motherhood, very easy, right? If you're, if you're pregnant and you've delivered the child, you're the mother. Fatherhood, it really depends on the category you fall in. 